Hey, before we get into this week's episode of The Culture, just a quick reminder that if you want to stay up to date with the show, you can follow it in your favourite podcast app. Just search for The Culture. All right, let's get into it. Hey, I'm Osman Faruqi, and today on The Culture, we've got a special bonus summer episode talking through the best TV of 2021. From drama to comedy to the best of Australian television, there's a lot to get through, so let's do it. To help, I'm here with Sarah Krasnerstein, the acclaimed author and the TV critic for The Saturday Paper. Thank you, firstly, for being such a wonderful guest on my show this year. Uh, well, thank you for doing this show. I'm delighted um, to be on it, but I'm uh, probably more delighted to be a listener. So thank you. That's extremely kind of you to say. <laughs> so we're going to review 2021 in television today. We're going to talk about some of our favourite TV shows Before we get into that conversation where we start to, I guess, list what we loved about 2021 in TV, it was an absurd year. Uh, I think we say that every year and I'm a bit worried about what we'll be saying this time next year (laughs) about 2022. (laughs) But when it comes to TV, in the midst of such a challenging and difficult year, what were you looking for? Is escapism, drama, comedy, anything in particular? It's funny because... Despite the weirdness, to put it gently, of uh, year two in the time of the pandemic, I found myself wanting what I have always wanted as a avid TV fan for my entire life, um, which is a strange mix of humor. I want to learn something. I want to feel some form of human connection to something greater. And uh, distraction. But I think that that last bit was uh, amplified, Mm. given the circumstances and the ambient unpleasantness in which we found ourselves. So I really wanted something that pinned me to the story or pinned me to whatever it was doing with an almost meditative attentiveness. So you could be pulled away from the noise and the troubles and the worries. So it probably was a a change of degree rather than nature. And I really wanted something that would just kind of, I could just sink into. And that's probably why um, if I started shows that I couldn't finish, the immediacy of that need for distraction was probably the reason. But maybe it's just poor taste, Doc. (laughs) Well, I'm a very firm believer in, you know, we don't have to justify anything that we like. That's true. On this show and also I think in, in the world more generally. But I definitely found myself more leaning towards shows like I've always liked everything, comedy, drama, reality, but I did lean more heavily to the comedy and reality genres this time around. I just thought, you know, I fully respect a lot of the grim, dark TV shows that exist and and the work that they do. (laughs) But when my life is kind of full of darkness and grimness, I am looking for something to escape from all of that. Yes, naturally. Let's get into our list. Yes. Let's start with what we love. Let's go with one of your favourites first. Mayor of Easttown. Okay. What I call the uh, Kate Winslet, Pennsylvania murder show. (laughs) I can feel it. This expectation from people to be something I don't think I'm good enough to be. Hey! They think you're a hero. I'm going to find out everything. 
everything. It was one of the biggest shows and most critically lauded of the year. Talk to me about it. Talk to me about why you loved Mayor of Easttown. So I initially was resistant, uh, which I think was just a function of its popularity and my curmudgeonly um, tendencies. Uh, and also, I thought it was about uh, a mayor of <laughs> East Town. So it's like, I'm not really into, you know, municipality. Uh, <laughs> Midwest local politics. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then I would confuse it with Witches of Eastwick. And you know, there's also a new Jeremy Renner show called Mayor of Kingstown, which is like mayor, like the actual local government thing. <laughs> And it'll probably do very well because of the association of people. <laughs> Why come up with anything new? Yeah, no. But once I watched it, I was hooked from, you know, a couple of seconds into that first episode. And it's funny how quickly sometimes, you know, you know it's, it's not, this is not a universal observation, but um, a literary agent once said to me that he knew something was good from the first sentence. And sometimes, you know, those first, that opening of a show has just the chops that you know that this is going to be extremely powerful. Mm. And I think that first episode of Mayor of Town is a masterclass in world building and the details, the accumulation of tiny details that go into character. So over the course of that series, it did and so subtly and beautifully what so much true crime purports to do, which is tell a human story that's, you know, the real story of the show, not the crime itself. Hmm. We hear that, you know, in the marketing of so many kind of, the, of those dark shows that you mentioned or docos or what have you. But rarely do we actually see it. So we had everything here that goes into something like that. Complexity of story, uh, multiple storylines, realistic dialogue, beautifully, finely drawn characters in realistic relationships. And while, you know, it was propulsive in the whodunit aspect, it was ultimately about human relationships and human sorrow and what everyday resilience looks like. So I just found that incredibly compelling. When we uh, spoke on the show, it was actually the very first episode of this show, Sarah, we talked about true crime as a genre and some of the Mm. discomfort we have with some of those tropes. And initially when I heard about this show, it's kind of like, oh, a woman cop in a small town, nothing is really as it seems. Let's solve the murder of a young woman. I was like, oh, okay, here we go again. (laughs) In what kind of ways do you think Mayor of Easttown maybe subverted our expectations about what this genre is traditionally about? Well, I think it was kind of the construction of Mayor as a character. She didn't function as, you know, female cop would uh, traditionally be drawn when we think of that in things mm. like Law and Order or, you know, it was a much more human, flawed, rough around the edges, human character. And she just fully inhabited the role. So, you know, you, you came expecting one thing and you were given a, a slightly elevated version of it, which made all the difference, I think. You lost your son recently. Yeah. Yeah. Does it get any easier? No. But after a while, 
You'll learn to live with the unacceptable. You realize that you still need to put food in the pantry, pay the electric bill, and wash the bed sheets, so sort of just find a way to live with it. I guess it's almost like it used true crime, knowing that that's a popular kind of genre with what felt like a predictable storyline to trick you into watching the show about really complicated people and family relationships. Well, yeah, I think that's exactly right. We don't talk about the ways in which the female body is repeatedly used in that genre as a object, whether it's of, you know, repulsion or fascination or fear and not just the female body, but violence to the female body. So it's, in that sense, an inherently misogynistic genre. Mm-hmm. And it's still capable of subversion. You can come for that, you know, almost kind of normative way of looking at victimization in true crime. And the kind of, um, I want to say that, that there was a softness or, or a gentleness, a protectiveness in entrusting that investigation to not just a female police officer, but who Mayor was as a person. Um, it seemed incredibly protective and realistically redemptive in a way that we don't see female characters very often on the screen. So it, it's important in that way. It's not just entertaining and interesting, but it's, yeah, I think it is an important show. We'll be back after a short break. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest, Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Bit of a pace change for the next one. This is a show that I texted you about uh, only a few weeks ago. And I said, Kraz, <laughs> are you across this show? I have a feeling you're going to love it. Um, I'm so excited to see in your email, it was on the list of shows that you love this year. It is Dave. Sometimes I feel like people only see me as this larger than life icon. But I'm just a normal guy. Hi. Hello. I'm Dave. You might know me as Lil Dicky. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot more to me. Don't you want to know who I am? Do you want to meet the guy behind the guy? Do you want to know what the industry is like? What a strange life I have. Got me tripping like, whoa, whoa. It's a show that I feel like has really flown under the radar, particularly here in Australia. And interestingly, I only discovered the show earlier this year. It's in its second season now. It first came out last year. It's an HBO show. I only discovered it because Donald Glover 
right? Childish Gambino mm. from Atlanta. He said he was really sick of people comparing Atlanta to Dave. And I thought, well, this is interesting. It's a show I've not seen before. And people are comparing it to Atlanta, one of the greatest pieces of art I think made in the past few years. I should check it out. Yeah. And I think, look, firstly, Donald Glover is right. This show is not really like Atlanta, mm. but it's still great. It's a very, very fun show. So it basically is a fictional biographical account of a real rapper, Little Dicky. He's a comedic rapper. Have to say, not a huge Little Dicky fan. Don't love his music or his whole yep. thing. But the writer, the credit of the show, Little Dicky, fictionalizes his attempt to make it in the music industry. And as a result, we kind of get this story of him trying to crack music, trying to become famous and successful. We also get a sense of his family life. We get his his friends, his relationships. But basically all of that, again, is just kind of this construction or this vehicle for various incidents to play out episode by episode. And some of them are very funny. Some of them are very heartfelt. I just feel like for me, this sort of hit that spot of being a short half an hour comedy but with the right level of heart and drama to make you really feel like you wanted to keep watching. Tell me about why you like that. Do you believe in me as a rapper? Ooh, ooh. Ah, ah, testing. All these rappers in here popping. You talking about, hi, my name is Dave. You should be like, what's up? It's Lil Dick. It's funny how when you're looking back at the year, the stuff that you most recently watched does stick in your mind. So it has a kind of advantage in that way. But it was really, for me, working upstream because when you mentioned it and then I looked at it and I thought, ah, I don't know, am I going to like this? And then I watched <laughs> the first episode and I was like, hells yes, I like this. <laughs> and I very rarely take recommendations as the other thing because I follow a more kind of serendipitous path in my reading and watching of what catches my eye and what has followed on from something. And it's, um, you know, some some weird, weird energy with that. But having said that, I was just hooked because it was so, it sat so strangely in its little genre, its little marketing Mm. spot on the shelf. It's hilarious. That was the first thing that struck me. It's gross and absurd and super uncomfortable and self-conscious about the problematic positioning of a white lead in a black cultural context that he's Mm. trying to insinuate himself into. But the way that all came together to, with each of the episodes, either confound our expectations or surprisingly conform to them after disappointing us, you know, know, in our ability to predict what was going to happen, it does have this kind of wild quality. So that just won me over the humor and also his, his competency as an MC against all expectations to the contrary (laughs) so it was just fun to watch and i think it does some things in a really clever way it reminded me well first not at all uh of atlanta and i think that's evidence of one of the smaller themes that he um comes back to which is an american kind of viewing public or consuming public that uh, has more enthusiasm and respect for Black culture than Black people. So we see that in, oh, there are Black male characters in this show. It must be at, like Atlanta. Totally, uh, totally. Which is 
absurd if you uh, have watched those shows. It's such a shallow reading of this and such a shallow critical take. It's like, it's about rap and there's black rappers in it. That's yeah. like Atlanta. Yeah. And I probably points to how uh, the, the dearth of uh, programming for a market that when the TV show is available on the menu match not at all the diversity of the viewing public. We're, we're still at the very start of that. The other issue, I think, back to its grossness and its offensiveness, uh, you know, I say offensiveness from a humorous point of view, not, you know, a political point of view. Uh, it it seemed to remind me of Big Mouth. Have you watched Big Mouth? I have watched Big Mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. So especially later seasons of Big Mouth where you just can't believe they're talking about the things that they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think, you know, it speaks to the context in which it's happening in which uh, it just seems to expand this, the sphere of concern in a way that you walk away thinking, well, that, that was good. That was bloody good. So, yeah, Dave was fun and interesting, and I would recommend that. It got the light and shade uh, so perfectly. Like, you'd have these episodes and moments where they're exploring mental health, but not just mental health in general terms, but specifically what it's like for someone from, uh, you know, the black community from a particularly financially marginalized background in this instance, struggling with bipolar disorder. And then a couple of episodes later, Mm. you have, I think it's one of the funniest things I've seen in television. It's like a scene that goes on for way too minutes. It's like six minutes where he tries to go viral by doing the mask thing. Oh, God. One more. Do it again. I'm sorry, guys. It's from the mask. We're going viral. Somebody suck me! I don't know how long it's going to be hilarious for, but trying to go viral is so inherently funny. (laughs) It's such a rich vein. Yeah. Totally. Another one you recommended, Sarah, Preppers, an ABC uh, comedy drama. Tell, Tell us about Preppers. Welcome to Eden, too. We're a self-sufficient community prepping for the end of the world. You're serious? Zombies. Global warming. The rapture. Governmental overreach. White people. And that's Lloyd. Armageddon. Armageddon ready for anything. You get it? I didn't come here for peace. I just want my land back. We're Aboriginal people. We all want our land back. You're saying that my land gave you a 10,000-year lease for the continued survival of Aboriginal people. Yes. Half of Eden 2 aren't even black. Doomsday prepping isn't cheap. So I came to Preppers after my um, mid-year obsession of Alone, and uh, that was the reality show. Many of the episodes take place in the uh, remote wilderness of Canada. And in the review of of Alone that I did, I quoted Wapkashig Rice, who's a First Nations Canadian writer. And it was a line from his book, Moon of the Crusted Snow, about how Native Americans had survived successive apocalypses and that they were the true survivors and that they have been here and they will always be here. Mm. And that was the kind of my, my headspace when I first saw the ads for Preppers. So very different show to Alone. It's a sitcom written by Nikia Louie. And it's about <laughs> a woman in her 30s who's a TV 
morning show host uh, with, you know, what would appear from the outside to be a very conventional, perfect, you know, Instagram worthy life who loses everything in the course of a day and then suddenly finds herself joining a group of mostly Aboriginal doomsday preppers. So this is the, you know, the story setting in which the episodes play out. And I don't want to give too much away because it is such a compelling, propulsive uh, world that she has built. It was extremely funny. But it was, again, that element of not just learning something, but feeling connected to something greater and having your eyes open the way in which the humor is interlaced with very serious observations about racist norms in everyday Australian culture, the importance of community, the ongoing effects of colonialism and intergenerational trauma, and what, you know, going back to Wapkishig Rice's quote, what actual resilience looks like in what is at times an absurd setting. But then again, given what we've been through, you know, if we could tell our 2019 selves what was about Mm. to happen, perhaps not so absurd. Mm. So all of those things, it was just the most timely, beautifully managed scripts and really enjoyable to watch. Yeah, timely is so right. Like it is a show that I feel like would have been as funny and as impactful whenever it came out. But whether it's through the way that, you know, you put me onto Alone and I approached uh, preppers in a similar kind of mindset. But it's really hard to avoid thinking about the world when you're watching a show about people preparing for the end of it. Yeah. Uh, and I think, yeah, it's it just sort of, you know, hit a, hit a chord for a lot of people. Yeah. And also I think kind of as we've seen in the last two years now, nearly, if there are ever a cause for pulling together and doing the right thing and, you know, being a community and dropping all the bullshit <laughs> then that's a pandemic. And no, it just, you know, uh, turned everything up to 11 in situations where the stakes are actual, you know, life or death. And wherever you go, there you are. You're still the same with your, all your petty <laughs> bullshit, your, your jealousies and your, you know, hatreds and your insecurities. And so seeing that play out in, in the extreme circumstances of, you know, this camp, is is funny because we've actually experienced the horror of it um, to a certain degree. We'll be back after this break. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Let's swing back to true crime, but a very different approach to true crime. This is a show we briefly mentioned on another conversation we had on this podcast, Only Murders in the Building. Tim Kono's death has been ruled a homicide, and apparently one of you jerk-offs did it. I can't stop thinking about this. Neither can I. We should do our own true crime podcast. We're going to go down there and look around for clues. You want to come? 
Do I want to break into a dead guy's apartment and go through all his shit? Sounds like an afternoon. It took me a little while to really get my head around this one. The premise of, you know, these three characters played by Steve Martin, Martin Short and Selena Gomez, all living in this beautiful old building in New York that uh, someone mysteriously dies in. They all love true crime podcasts, so they decide to make their own true crime podcast and try and solve the murder. And so the story, like, offered me so much as someone who likes podcasts and likes to, you know, have conversations about genre and true crime. I didn't love it from the first episode, but mm-hmm. enough people I trusted told me to persist. And basically from the second, I was just totally in. Like, I understood the world. I got what they were doing. It's very funny. It's very poignant. And it's quite an in a thoughtful and smart criticism, I think, of both the genre, mm. uh, which, you know, we were talking about at the start, and also the way that the media and and podcasting and the fact that true crime is such a dominant feature of, of, of podcasting and how that has kind of broken people's brains and the way they think about crime or they see a body and they're like, all right, time to solve this. <laughs> I found that element of it so interesting. And they also just found it such a charming uh, and, and smart and fun show to watch as well. Do you consent to being recorded? Just say anything to agree. No, please. Thanks, perfect. We're gonna cut. Um, I like the emotion. Keep that. I kind of need you to enunciate better. Do you have anything? The crying is covering the dialogue. Oh, that's a good. That's a good note. Okay. When you're ready, and action. Charming, I think, is exactly it. That's a bullseye. It's you know not the most cleverly written show. But that's not really why I was there. It was delightful to watch kind of the interplay of Martin and Short and Selena Gomez. Um, but and there's the element of, you know, New York apartment porn <laughs> where you just just could marinate in these delicious settings all day. The staging is beautiful. Uh, the scenery, the music, and there's elements of kind of this magic realist, you know, leap into memory and and symbolism, very small, almost um, jarring because they're not sustained throughout, but they draw on those little techniques. So that's quite creative and interesting. Um, And this is one of the shows that, you know, I didn't really write about it because it comes down to, I just like it, which is my <laughs> highest compliment and entirely uninteresting for talking about. But um, that element of the podcast culture, true crime podcast culture with its fans and its motifs becoming sufficiently solidified to you know be a, a presence or a character in the show is interesting and something that's very new, I think, probably since the advent of Serial. Uh, and if you wanted to get more serious about it, I think the ways in which we instantly uh, react to human trauma as entertainment, that's present as well in the ways in which, you know, people are sitting outside the building being fans of this podcast and talking about, you know, how how the crime went down. Uh, It exists at the level of consumption rather than emotion, uh, which is true of, you know, how we react to crime more generally. I think we've seen uh, in the papers with, the arrest of, this is in Melbourne lately, the arrest of the pilot for um, 
the uh, disappearances of the two campers in the mm. high country mm. and, you know, Cleo Smith's kidnapping, the ongoing search for William Tyrrell, that, you know, we're, we're kind of trending towards a more American consumption uh, in, in our papers and our appetites of uh, police investigation, forensic work as entertainment on a less than 24 hour news cycle. So that's the serious aspect of that kind of true crime prevalence and how it instantly alchemically converts in the public mind into entertainment. But perhaps that's been there since, you know, the advent of the novel. So I wouldn't get too brutal about it. But yeah, at the end of the day, only murders in the building. It feels nice to watch. Uh, you don't have to think too deeply about it. Yeah, it's a great summer binge, I think, if there's like a rainy day yeah. or rainy weekend and you just want something to kick back, like there's a mystery to solve and it's fun. Like it's not much more you can ask for. And it arguably has the best credits uh, of any show this year, I would say. Yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous credits. I just wanted to mention a couple of other shows <laughs> uh, that I really enjoyed this year that if you you haven't seen before, Great. again, add it to your summer list. I mean, The White Lotus I found extremely fun and entertaining. Uh, I, In hindsight, it probably doesn't make like my top list because it was really fun to watch. But then at the end of it, I did kind of wonder what the point of it was and whether it was as good as I thought at the time. And maybe I just love the music a lot because the music is on another level. Uh, and another show, Reservation Dogs, something that you said you wanted to watch, uh, Sarah. Mm-hmm. I would recommend it. Um, Taika yes. Waititi uh, doing a story about Indigenous uh, Americans living on a reservation. It is it's, it's incredible. Act normal. No one has seen a stolen food truck, would you? Oh. Someone stole the truck. Broad daylight. Put your seapot on. Seatbelt. People safety. We're stealing a f***ing chip truck. I do not give a shit, man. Put your seapot on. We're not going Go! Apparently it was full of chips. I've never seen anything like that. You're good thieves. Best in town. Oh, thank you. It is a small town. That's a show to me that feels more like Atlanta than Dave, certainly, in that it's very authentic and it's about a community and a group that is told very sincerely. And it manages to help you understand a world that, frankly, is deeply underrepresented in in, in popular culture, but isn't, you know, heavy-handed about it. And it's also uh, funny. Like that's I keep saying this. What I like from TV is is it meaningful? Do I understand more about the world? Am I laughing? Yeah, perfect. Give it to me. Yes. And the other show, which every year for like the last twenty seven years, you could say is one of the best shows around. Curb your enthusiasm. The latest <laughs> season, a little bit more hit and miss, but um, I'm obsessed. Are there any other shows that you just wanted to quickly mention? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so most recently, The Shrink Next Door, Paul Rudd, Will Ferrell, New York in the eighties. And to describe this is almost to dare people to watch it because it seems uh, so odd, but (laughs) it is a delightful watch and it is hilarious and strange. And Will Ferrell pretending to be Jewish and read from the Torah (laughs) is actually uh, not offensive, but very funny and, and, Again, I just I was I was pinned to the screen for this. That's that's a very recent watch. Earlier in the year, pretend it's a city uh, with Fran Lebowitz. What's not to love? Uh, I'm going to say the McCartney three two one, which is the doco with Paul McCartney and mm. Rick Rubin. Uh, super technical. So 
if you are not a huge fan of either one of them or the music uh, music production itself, you're probably not going to like this one. You're probably better off with something like Get Back if you're um, still interested. But I just thought the level of detail and kind of fly on the wall observation of these two very talented musicians at work to be incredibly compelling. Um, and I really like the latest season of Schtissel. Again, to describe it is almost to dare you to watch it, this insular uh, community using magic realist elements to kind of reflect the way in which the mind works. And at the end, you're feeling very close to characters that seemed almost impenetrable and uninteresting in their fanaticism at the beginning. Hey, Sarah, thank you for talking to me throughout the year. And thank you for talking to me about the best things to watch in 2021. That was a great chat. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on creating this wonderful thing that has just gone from strength to strength in a year where conditions have been almost unworkable. Kudos to you, Oz. Uh, you are too kind. It's the guests that do all the hard work. Have a wonderful summer, Sarah. I'll speak to you next year. Cheers, you too. The Culture is a weekly show from Schwartz Media. It's produced by Bez Zoder and Atticus Basto. Our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen, and our theme music is by Hermitude. You can follow us on Instagram. We're at theculture.pod. I'm Osman Faruqi, and hope you're enjoying the summer. Listener.